0: you found the place to escape from reality, The Riley and Kimmy Show.
1: The Riley and Kimmy Show. The Riley and Kimmy Show. Toys, movies, comics, and so much more. The Riley and Kimmy Show. And the more that you listen, the more that you'll know. The Riley and Kimmy Show.
2: Welcome to the Riley and Kimmy Show, Golden Age of Radio Tribute. I'm your host, Patrick Riley. After this Golden Age of Radio production, please visit our website, RileyandKimmy.com, for other Golden Age of Radio Tributes. Also on our website, daily podcasts that include conversation about nostalgia and retro topics with trivia. Please like our Facebook page and share with your friends. Our daily podcasts are available via iHeartRadio, iTunes, SoundCloud, and on our website and Facebook pages.
3: Yes, I know Ernest Hemingway, the man we all call Papa, a good drinker, two-fisted, saw him flatten a pestering man in the nightclubs of Broadway. For that, he needed only one fist.
4: Leonard
2: Lyons, the columnist. Hemingway was able to take simple scenes, simple speech, simple language, and to make of it an instrument of feeling. James T. Farrell, author of Studs Lunigan.
5: Certain things always stand out in a man's mind, and a meeting with a man like Hemingway, of course, was something like a sore thumb. I'd always remember it, no matter what happened, no matter how long I went on.
4: Sidney Franklin, renowned bullfighter. Meet Ernest Hemingway. You have heard some of the many voices transcribed who will help us to meet Ernest Hemingway. This is Leon Pearson. Not all of Hemingway is great, but the part that is great casts a long shadow over most of his fraternity. There are two of him, really, the Messrs. Hemingway, or the Honorable Mr. Hemingway, and Hemi, or Papa. One of them received the Nobel Prize, the other stayed home and went fishing. One of them earned the accolade in Stockholm among the greatest authors of our time. The other earned the accolade in Havana of Papa, the man who drinks a daiquiri with rum at double strength. The daiquiri called Papa in his honor. One of these Hemingways was saying last week, I don't want the prize if it's going to cost me a book, and I'm going down the coast for a cruise, and I'll anchor in a cove and get out my writing board, and I'll write good. One man was a man of great stature, mature, composed. The other was a boy still, a rough, impetuous boy. In Stockholm, the Nobel Committee had debated long, some contending the adolescent disqualified the adult. The language of the award carried a thrust, but it carried enough acclaim to take him across the river and onto high ground. This is a quotation Hemingway's earlier writings display brutal, cynical, and callous sides, which may be considered at variance with the Nobel Prize requirements for a work of an ideal tendency. But on the other hand, he also possesses a heroic pathos which forms the basic element of his awareness of life, a manly love of danger and adventure, with a natural admiration for every individual who fights the good fight in a world of reality overshadowed by violence and death. Marlon Brando, the actor, one of our country's best, gives us a man who fights the good fight, gives us the old man and the sea, the old man in an apostrophe to his foe, the fish. How do you feel, fish?
6: Fish. He asked aloud. I feel good and my hand is better and I have food for the night and day. Pull the boat, fish. He did not truly feel good because the pain from the cord across his back had almost passed pain and gone into dullness that he mistrusted. But I have had worse things than that, he thought. My hand is cut a little and the cramp has gone from the other. My legs are All right. Also now I've gained on him in the question of sustenance. It was dark now as it became dark quickly after the sun sets in September. He lay against the warm wood of the bough and rested all that he could. The first stars were out. He did not know the names of Rigel, but he saw it and he knew soon that they would all be out and that he would have his distant friends. The fish is my friend too, he said aloud. And I have never seen or heard such a fish. But I must kill him. I am glad we did not have to try to kill the stars. Imagine if every man must try to kill the moon, he thought. The moon runs away. But imagine if a man each day should have to try to kill the sun. We were born lucky, he thought. Then he was sorry for the great fish that had nothing to eat. And his determination to kill him never relaxed in his sorrow for him. How many people will he feed, he thought. But are they worthy to eat him? No, of course not. There is no one worthy of eating him from the manner of his behavior and his great dignity. I do not understand these things, he thought. But it is good that we do not have to try to kill the sun or the moon or the stars. It is enough to live on the sea and kill our true brothers.
4: Hemingway came in with the 20th century, just at the turn of the century, Oak Park, Illinois. He started writing in high school, writing and scrapping. He's been doing both ever since. His father refused to let him go off to the war in 1918. His father helped him get a job as a reporter in Kansas City. This was to be his university. Here he learned for the first time how to handle
7: the language. In 1917, the Kansas City Star was one of the half-dozen great American newspapers. Charles Fenton, who wrote The Apprenticeship of Ernest Hemingway. Through its city room during this period, there passed a stream of young, obscure reporters like Hemingway, who during the next generation would form a kind of self-perpetuating cadre in the editorial rooms of the Hearst Empire, in the Curtis Publications in Philadelphia, in the executive offices of other Midwestern papers, and in the writers' wings of Hollywood Studios. Innumerable smooth, professional storytellers served their apprenticeships under the star's stern discipline. They worked us very hard, Hemingway remembered many years later. I like to work hard, though, and I liked all the special and extra work. That was the same memory which his assistant city editor had of him. Pete Wellington, who is today managing editor of the star, remembered Hemingway in 1917 as a boy who liked action especially. When he was assigned to the general hospital, Wellington said in 1951... Hemingway had an irritating habit of riding off with the first ambulance to go to some kind of cutting scrape without letting the city desk know that he was leaving the post uncovered. Hemingway himself remembered the rules of writing which Pete Wellington taught him, the rules which Wellington has embodied into the star's famous style sheet. The style sheet's first paragraph might well stand as the first commandment in the prose creed which is today synonymous with the surface characteristics of Hemingway's work. Use short sentences... Use short first paragraphs. Use vigorous English. Be positive, not negative. Hemingway's sense of obligation to the Kansas City Star has always been profound. The war
4: was still on, and Hemingway, only a kid, was bound to get into it. The best he could do with parental approval was the Red Cross. He went to Italy as a stretcher bearer In the front lines, plenty of action. A burst of shrapnel hit him in 237 places in one leg. Before the end, he was in it again, this time as a soldier with the Italian forces. His homecoming to the United States was heroic. He fell in love, married at 21. He and his wife
7: both wanted Europe, They sailed for Paris. Now he was to be exposed to a multitude of new experiences, including the invigorating friendship of significant writers who became, for a time, his friends and, for a time, his tutors. People like Gertrude Stein, Sherwood Anderson, Ezra Pound, and Ford Maddox Ford. They were important factors in his apprenticeship, but never more than elements in a variety of influences. His friendship with Miss Stein and with Anderson soured during later years. There are a variety of interpretations that attempt to account for this. Perhaps it was because, as so often happens, the pupil began to outshine the master. Hemingway's
4: action in Italy gave birth to Farewell to Arms, which shot him to fame. The short stories, the killers, and others had laid the foundation. Hemingway's action in Spain gave birth to For Whom the Bell Tolls. Always an apprenticeship. And he apprenticed himself to a bullfighter before death in the afternoon. The bullfighter was Sidney Franklin, famous in the arenas of Spain. He later did a book about himself, Bullfighter from Brooklyn. But he'd never heard of that other book writer, Hemingway, when this guy knocked on his door in Madrid.
5: We got to talking, and and the first thing I know, he asked me if I'd mind him going around the country watching me work at the different fairs. And, of course, knowing what a tremendously expensive thing that was, I sort of looked at him. His clothes, his looks, as one thing or another. didn't mean to me that he could afford such a thing. So when I told him that it'd be rather an expensive proposition, he said, well, he'd managed to take care of that. I said, well, what do you do for a living? He said, well, uh, I write. I'm an author. And, uh, you're an author? Do you make a living at it? Well, he said, I managed to get along. But he didn't say it in a way that could have given me any indication at all of who he was or what he was. Then I invited him home for lunch. And, uh, while at lunch... He started impressing me again. Uh, Would I mind if you went around the country? I said, look, I can't can't stop anyone from going around the country and seeing me fight. After all, uh, if you've got the price to pay for your admission, you can get in any time. But I doubt if you're going to be able to do it, because as soon as my name goes up on a card, there are no tickets to be had at any price. And while we were eating, which lasted about five hours, all through the afternoon... I was mulling the thing over and over and over and over, and by his looks, truly, I didn't believe that the man was anything. By his looks, I suddenly decided that, well, I'd try to help him out on the subject, and uh, we were traveling in about 15 or 20, 25 cars at times, and I felt that we'd always have room for one more if he'd want to squeeze in. When we finally decided on that, then I said, well, I'll tell you another thing. Uh if you will come along, if you're not scared, supposing I make a place with you, you come into the ring with my troop, or not not on the procession, but come in when my sword handler in the valley comes in with the swords and capes and things like that, and you just stand behind one of the bluffers there, the bulladero, behind the fence. Well, I thought Ernest would break down and cry at the time. Of course, I didn't know him well enough then to call him Ernest. I just uh, said you most of the time. And... uh, well, would I consider a thing like that? That would be great, much better than any, anything you could think of. As far as I was concerned, it would mean that I wouldn't have to get him a ticket, which was scarcer than hen's teeth. And then came the subject of lodging. I said, well, fares in Spain, usually the towns are so crowded that you can't get a bed anywhere. And it's f- hard to find standing room in any of the hotels. So I asked him if he'd be willing to accept making a switch and sort of sharing room with my valet. So we made the rounds, and it wasn't until I got back to Madrid, after that trip, which lasted about 25 days, that uh, practically on arrival, one of the secretaries from the embassy was waiting at the house for me. And uh, I couldn't understand what she was so upset about, but uh, she insisted that I had been traveling around the country with Ernest Hemingway and that the ambassador would let me name my own ticket if I would bring Ernest Hemingway to tea that afternoon. Uh, Ernest Hemingway? That's my God. Uh, Traveling, he's been traveling around the country with me? Who is he? Well, he's... Don't you know who Ernest Hemingway is? No, I haven't the slightest idea. Well, uh, impossible, Sidney. I don't believe that you don't know who Ernest Hemingway is. why he's the greatest living author there is. Ah, I couldn't take that at all. So, I know we had quite a a tilt about it. And I dashed over to his hotel and found him in. And then, of course, I said, now, wait a minute. Who are you,
4: anyhow? Hemingway became the bronze god of younger men. Here was a man who knew the women of Paris, the bullfighters of Seville, the lions of Africa. To young writers, he was a brave, bristling man who took obscene words off the back house wall and put them in print. Hemingway was no Longfellow, kindly, sober, patriarchal, creating kindly, sober village smithies who go to church on Sundays. Hemingway was no Stevenson, hollow-chested, dreamy-eyed, creating swashbuckling pirates out of his fevered imagination. No, here was a swashbuckling pirate in his own right, living it up and writing it down. That's the way to write, they cried. Live it up so you can write it down. Farrell was one of these, James T., only slightly younger, writing Studs Lunigan with brute realism. Mr.
2: Farrell. Hemingway created a sense of the value of ordinary life around us. This was one of the things I saw, and this is one of the things I felt in his work, and this is one of the ways in which it stimulated me. I was able to see Chicago better, to hear what was said in my Chicago with more appreciation of the American vernacular. He arrived on the American scene with his style and manner perfected and under complete control. As long as human beings live and feel, become entangled with one another, fall in love and are concerned with their own thoughts and with their own fears and attitudes towards death, there will be in them something that is unstated and unstatable. The quality of suggestiveness in Hemingway's writing has something of the unstated in it in the sense which I have uh, explained it here. He uses a controlled understatement and sometimes a conscious irrelevancy to suggest and to imply the unstated in our feelings, to convey a sense of that which perhaps never can be adequately voiced and put into words. Prior to Hemingway dialogue was not always used so consciously and in such a perfected way in American writing. One can see, however, something of a similar use of dialogue in a few writers, in Stephen Crane and in Ring Lardner. But Ernest Hemingway is one of the American writers who perfected and expanded the fictional use of dialogue as a device and who with this contribute towards making our American idiom a language for the evocation of sensitive and complicated feelings.
4: Faulkner once said of Hemingway, he has no courage. He's never crawled out on a limb. He's never been known to use a word that might send the reader to the dictionary. While Hemingway's style could be ridiculous if pushed too far. When he published Across the River and Into the Trees, not one of his best, E.B. White wrote Across the Street and Into the Grill that was in the New Yorker. The girl was near enough now so he could smell her fresh receptiveness and the lint in her hair. Her skin was light blue, like the sides of horses. I love you, he said, and we are going to lunch together for the first and last time, and I love you very much. Let's go to Schrath's, said the girl, low. But first I must phone Mummy. She stepped into a public booth and dialed true and well using her finger. Then she telephoned. For Whom the Bell Told was a far better book, but the style was still to be parodied. Cornelio to Skinner. For whom the gong sounds.
8: Robert Jordan was hunching over a rocky ledge now. Hanging on by the bristles of his chest. The warm Spanish earth scraped his belly. Robert Jordan could feel a pine cone in his navel. It was a resinous pine cone. The kind they grow. People, Robert Jordan thought. Turn out to be people. There's no getting away from that. Sure there isn't. Hell no. He flung some hand grenades into a nosebag, trampling them firmly with his rope soled shoes. Robert Jordan opened his pack. He unlocked the grommet, untied the drawstrings, uncoiled the insulating wire, and tossed the caber. An old man sat at the mouth of the cave, guarding the entrance with a mauser, a howitzer, a winchester, and a flyswatter. Salud, camarada, said the old man, equally said Robert Jordan, then added hola, for good measure. Thou, thou wast of the streetcar? Wast. He's old, Robert Jordan said to himself, and the gypsy's old too, and some day I will be old. But I'm not old yet. Not yet I'm not old. He knows of which whereof he speaks of, old one, the gypsy was saying. keva young one? It makes well to joke, old one. Pass. Middle-aged one. The mouth of the cave was camouflaged by a curtain of saddle blankets, matadors, capes, and the soles of old espadrilles. Inside it smelt of man sweat, acrid and brown. Horse sweat, sweet and magenta. There was the leathery smell of leather and the coppery smell of copper. And borne in on the clear night air came the distant smell of skunk. The wife of Pablo was stirring frijoles. In a Catalonian wineskin, she wore rope-soled shoes and a belt of hand grenades. Over her magnificent buttocks swung a 16th-century cannon taken from the Escorial. I, obscenity in the obscenity of thy unprintable obscenity, said Pilar. This is the ingles of the streetcar. The woman was stirring the steaming mess with the horns of a mura bull. She stared at Robert Jordan and smiled. Obscenity, 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 she said, not unkindly. Que va, said Robert Gordon. Bueno, good. Minus mal, said El Sordo, not so good. Go unprint thyself, said Pilar. The gypsy went outside and unprinted himself.
4: Hemingway did not go to college. He went to war. He did everything young. He fought young, he drank young, he wrote young... And he married young. 1921, and he was only 21, he married Hadley Richardson. 1927, married Pauline Pfeiffer. 1940, married Martha Gelhorn. 1946, Mary Welch. He was born a Congregationalist, became a Roman Catholic. He is notorious as master of the four-letter words. He drinks liquor by the quart. He's off absinthe now, but absinthe used to be his favorite drink. Ten miles east of Havana lies the fishing village of Cohima. And here he used to sit for hours at the bar, drinking and talking with the bronzed old men of the sea. He paid for their beer or rum or cognac and talked to them in Spanish. Mostly he listened. Drinking did not dull his mind. He would drink as much as a quart of gin in an all-day session. Out of those bottles and out of those men and out of that brain came the old man and the sea. A social oddity. An eccentric. Is this the way to fame? Should a young man who wants to be famous and write like Hemingway, should he avoid going to college, marry four times, and use
1: profane and obscene language? I would like to point out that our good Lord never went to Harvard, and neither did Abraham Lincoln. John Mason Brown, critic and author. And for that matter, Mr. George Bernard Shaw never went to college. The question of marrying four times would seem to me a matter of natural selection in Mr. Hemingway's business. The question of profanity is certainly one open to serious doubt. Anyone who reads Hemingway knows how beautifully he can employ the language and he, without the aid or support of profanity. The word you used was eccentricity. I think there are all kinds of eccentric. If a person assumes clothes, or as Oscar Wilde did when he dressed up bunthorn-wise in velvet, or if he wears a, an appalling moustache, as uh, Dolly does at the present time, that is really just personal and exterior publicity. Most eccentricity that we now encounter in columns and so forth, I personally believe is something that is wished off on a client by a paid press agent. I think what you and I are talking about is a different kind of eccentricity, and eccentricity in its finest sense. The talent for fine writing is away from the norm anyway. You are set aside from the center. In that sense, I say that Mr. Hemingway is an eccentric and has the right to be and the need to be to be a writer. If acting like Mr. Hemingway could mean that everyone could write like Mr. Hemingway, I should think such action would be mandatory. (laughs) I don't know, Leon, if you saw some time ago in the Sunday Times a statement of Hemingway's credo And the credo has nothing to do with having a drink now and then or watching a bullfight or this or that or a crack crack up in Africa in a plane. What Mr. Hemingway was saying was that all that we have in this world is time and very little time at that. And all that a writer can do is in that time learn his craft from his predecessors and add to that craft the little that he himself has learned and that little knowledge that is personal and the means of expressing it, those are the two contributions, according to Hemingway, and the only contribution which a writer can hope to make, that will survive him. And it seems to me a superb statement of credo.
4: The scene is the office of the late Max Perkins of Scribner's, the same Max Perkins who edited Wolf and didn't have to edit Hemingway. Seated with Perkins is Max Eastman, author and critic. Enter, stage left, Hemingway. There follows an encounter which will be told and retold as long as Scribner's stands on Fifth Avenue. Max Eastman looks back over the years.
9: When he published his glorification of bullfighting, Death in the Afternoon, I took a crack at it in a critical essay. To me, bullfighting is the unsportsmanlike tormenting of a dumb animal. And I thought Ernest's book contained a good deal of rather highfalutin gush about it. I called my critical essay Bull in the Afternoon. I described Ernest in my essay as a full-sized man, ewing his way with flying strokes of the poet's broad axe, which I greatly admire. But I also said that this trait in his character had begotten a veritable school of fiction writers, a literary style, you might say, of wa- wearing false hair on the chest. That made Ernest mad. And when he found me sitting by Max Perkins' desk one afternoon, the book containing my essay on the desk, he picked it up and opened it and pushed it in my face. Not hard enough to hurt, you know, but just to be insulting. I am boy enough myself to think you can't take a thing like that. You have to do something. But I'm no boxer, and I was aware that if I got into a fist fight with Ernest, I would kiss the carpet in about three seconds, as several of his literary critics have. But I can wrestle a bit. And what I did was to grab Ernest by the neck and hug him so close that he could only get in a few ineffectual rabbit punches. We went right over Perkins' desk, sweeping it clean of books, papers, and writing materials and landed on the floor. The desk was so conveniently placed and my action was so sudden and unexpected that Ernest was on his back with both shoulders touching the floor almost before he had time to think. The situation was funny and he looked up in my face and laughed. Just then, Max Perkins, who was a shy and rather delicately well-behaved person, said to me in a shaking voice, Max, please don't do this. I didn't really know exactly what I was doing from there on, and I think Ernest was also a little doubtful at that point, whether we were fooling or fighting. Anyway, we both scrambled up and started gathering up the books and papers. You don't need to bother with that, boys, Max Perkins said. The girls can tend to that. I said I'm glad they can because I'm winded and sat down where I'd been sitting when Ernest came in. Ernest came over with an approving smile and patted me on the shoulder as much as to say, Well, you're not as soft as I thought. But then he changed his mind, went back to the other side of the room, and challenged me with all the appropriate epithets to mortal combat under some elaborately specified condition. Instead of accepting the challenge, I turned to Perkins and said, Max, who is calling on you, Ernest or I? Perkins refrained from answering, and after a pause, Ernest said, I get you, and walked out of the room. I don't think either of us came out of this fracas with any very high or heroic honors. It all ended quite properly in a lot of hilarious kidding from the columnists. I was lampooned by the sports writers it was the Croton Mauler, and Westbrook Pegler, I remember, spoke of Hemingway as one of the most talented of our fur bearing authors. <laughs>
4: the civilized world, imagine with composure, a great writer today being shot down in a duel. It almost happened to Hemingway. His wife, Mary, got into an argument in Havana with Ted Scott, a journalist, over the succulent qualities of steaks from a lion. She liked lion steaks. He didn't. It was a cocktail party. The argument grew warm, and she called him a stupid British colonial. He's a New Zealander. Well, Scott wrote about the incident. He has a column in the Havana Post. And he was not complimentary to Mrs. Hemingway. Mr. Hemingway telephoned him.
10: I identified myself on the phone and Hemingway said, I want to know if you're going to apologize to my wife for the things you've been writing about her. I replied that I did not intend to apologize in a situation in which I obviously was the offended party. Hemingway isn't as handy with a telephone as he is with a pen or a typewriter, but this day he was in good form. Well, he said, you said in your column that if I had said to you what my wife said to you, you would do this and thus and so to me. Well, I think you are. And then Mr. Hemingway went down the list of names, none of them of honorable connotation, which he thought should be applied to me. At the conclusion, he said that he was waiting for me out at his residence, that I should go out there alone and he would be alone, and we would settle our differences man to man. I told Mr. Hemingway that a meeting would have to take place in some neutral spot, certainly not at his house. And I then wrote him a formal letter in which I told him that I consider myself grievously offended by his language and conduct as he made it clear he intended me to be. I now challenge him to meet me with forty-five caliber pistols, the other details to be arranged by the respective gentlemen serving as seconds. It must be understood that each pistol shall have one cartridge in the chamber and a full clip. Each principal will have the right to discharge the entire magazine irrespective of whether or not hits have been scored. End of quote. On the evening of August the 21st, following his several telephone calls in the afternoon, Mr. Hemingway again telephoned me. I told him that if he were looking for trouble, he could set his mind at ease because trouble he was about to have. I then assured him that he would be hearing from my seconds within 24 hours. Oh, Hemingway said, you're challenging me to a phony duel. I replied that if he thought there was anything phony about 45 automatics in a full clip, it was not my idea of phoniness. Hemingway then said that he did not want to kill me, and I replied that that was a task which lay ahead of him. When we talked in the evening, which was the last time I spoke to him, he suggested several times that I intended to make a front-page story about the difficulties existing between us. I then told him that I had no hope or intention of writing to fame on his shirt tail or his shroud. All I wanted was an apology, or for Mr. Hemingway to give me satisfaction at a shooting party. He could take his choice. Well, on Sunday, that is to say the following day, Uh, my representative went out to San Francisco de Paula to see Mr. Hemingway at his house. He was received courteously and apparently a lengthy conversation took place. A relevant part of it is summed up in my representative's letter to me in which he said that Hemingway manifested no intention whatsoever of apologizing to me. At the same time, according to the letter, Mr. Hemingway said he had no desire to fight a duel with me and furthermore stated that he did not consider me to have the qualifications to fight a duel with him. I pressed the matter in a subsequent letter to my representative and insisted that he challenge Mr. Hemingway formally to meet me and give me satisfaction. To this challenge, Mr. Hemingway replied by registered letter, the relevant part of which reads as follows. Quote, For good and sufficient reasons, I do not choose to meet Mr. Edward Scott on the so-called field of honor, nor anywhere else. I will answer no challenges from him and will send no friends of mine to meet with his friends. If any tribunal interprets this as being motivated by cowardice, I believe they would be in error. I am not a publicity seeker and I will not be provoked into something which can only lead to the worst form of publicity. Aside from other considerations, my obligation at this time is to continue my writing and regain my my health. At the present time... I am fighting no duels with anyone. If any friends of Mr. Scott consider that to be an act of cowardice, they are at liberty to think so. But it is a decision made by a man who has served in war with honor and is fully conscious of his obligations. Since I have let you know my decision reached after mature consideration and after talking with you, there is little point in explaining further.
4: Signed, Ernest Hemingway. As early as 1923 in Paris, Hemingway wrote a piece about Mussolini strutting across the stage of Europe, shouting, swimming, dueling. Hemingway said, really brave men do not have to fight duels. We said a moment ago there are two Hemingways. There should be little doubt about that. Even little Abner
0: agrees. Here's Al Capp. Most great writers of fiction are remembered by the many and varied characters they've created. Dickens by Fagin, McAuber, Bill Sykes, Harry Gamp. Shakespeare by King Lear, Romeo, Macbeth, the shrew, and the guy that tamed her. Walt Kelly by Pogo, Albert, and that troublesome one he imported from Wisconsin. Ernest Hemingway, however, has created only one character, and, and that's Ernest Hemingway. Whether he's a couple of young fellows and the sun also rises, or an aging man and across the river and into the trees, none of us remember the names of these characters, but all of us recognize their attitudes. They're all the same guy, they're all Hemingway, and the only difference in them is the difference in Hemingway's age and attitudes at those times. Now, now this guy Hemingway that Hemingway created is, is very much like a fellow I created. His name is Hairless Joe, and he... He lives in a cave near Dogpatch where the Abner lives. Now, he, he could live in a perfectly comfortable shack like all the rest of the Dogpatchers, but he prefers the cave because deep in it are all sorts of wild beasts who roam out and tangle with Hairless Joe with murder first and, and dinner later as their object. But Joe likes it where he is, where there's death and danger. That's because Hairless Joe is a primitive man who, who enjoys struggling for survival, Hemingway, half of Hemingway at least, is a primitive man, too. Like Hairless Joe, he he could live comfortably and and safely like his neighbors, but like Hairless Joe, that doesn't seem like really living to him. So Hemingway finds the dangerous places all over the world and roams around in them facing destruction and discomfort and and enjoying it all. Then he pulls himself out of the wreckage, sits down at his typewriter and, and tells us how it all felt in his book. And we buy him by the hundreds of thousands. Now, that's the half of Hemingway that that isn't a primitive man. That's the half that's a very smart, modern guy. You see, he has the fun of of really being alive and then the fun of telling us about it. And and we pay him and honor him for sharing his fun with us. And that's my tribute to Ernest Hemingway. He's smarter than Hairless Joe. (laughs)
4: Difficult to get next to Hemingway today, he lives in a remote place outside Havana, keeps aloof. As for publicity, he's had it. He told us the other day, I've had too much, especially since the plane crash in Africa, too much. I have to go to sea to be alone. But those who have known him best and seen him last have clear recollections. Leonard Lyons, the columnist, knows Papa well.
3: Yes, I know Ernest Hemingway, the man we all call Papa. Known him before, during and after the war years. Three wars, for he's never been one to duck the places of violence, whether it be a battlefield, a fight club, or a bullring. He considers it part of his work, his education, like his constant travels, for new experiences, for the fuller life which has helped enrich his talents, with or without a gun. Once he tried to get John Ringling North to let him work the lions and tigers at the Ringling Circus. Sure, he said, it's always easier to get hot while you're on the lid of a steaming kettle, But somewhere in China one night, he was asked what he liked about war, and he said to win it and get it over with and have a bit of peace. Papa is more than a man, Marlena Dietrich told me. He is a way of life. I've seen a bit of his way of life. I've known him in the nightclubs of Broadway. A good drinker, two-fisted. Saw him flatten a pestering man, too. For that, he needed only one fist.
11: Robert Manning of Time magazine did the cover story on Hemingway. He went out for some fishing after a long layoff induced by his injuries, and he had a wonderful time. He was relaxed and very much himself. As we put out through the mouth of Havana Harbor past Morrow Castle, he looked out and said to me, It's the last free place there
3: is, the sea. I've also seen him in his moments of tenderness. It was at his home outside of Havana, and I'd brought my children there. How do you write a novel? One of my sons asked him. Do you make it up? Yes, said Papa, you make it up. You invent it. You make it up out of everything you've ever known, from all the things you've ever seen and felt and learned. You imagine it from day to day and then write it down, as if you're telling the story to yourself or to your children. That's how you write a novel. And when he writes, he said, it always is with a feeling that this will be a book which won't have a single word change from the way he would write it if it were the last and only thing he ever would write. A young writer who had a habit of using polysyllables sought his advice. ''I wouldn't know how to advise a young writer,'' said Hemingway. ''But in your case, I'd make believe that the words were to be tattooed on a person. That should make you cut them short and to the point.'' He showed us the trunk where the manuscript of his new book was stored. His servants had been instructed that in case of fire, the manuscript must be saved first, and then, only then, the rest. He showed my sons his hunting rifles and the skull of a lion he had shot. ''Were you afraid?'' the little boy asked. ''Yes,'' said Papa.'' He took them out to the fields to teach them how to shoot. Rows and rows of empty liquor bottles had been set up as targets. How do you get so many empty bottles, my youngest asked him, and Papa smiled and placed his arms around the boy's shoulders to help him hold and aim the gun. My son was nervous and fired and missed. Look, said Hemingway, you've got to shoot as if it's going to kill you if you don't kill it. He talked to the boy softly, gently. You've got to get calm first, he said, calm inside as if you were in a church. When that lion's coming at you, get calm inside as if you've got something to believe in, and then shoot.
11: The fishing turned out to be extra good. At one point, two fish struck at once. They were a dolphin. He reeled his fish in quickly and then turned to me, a complete neophyte, as I struggled with mine, and sort of talked the fish in. Take him softly, Easy, easy. Working with style. That's it, Style. Bring the rod up slowly. Now reel in, fast. Suave, suave. With style. Don't break his mouth. If you jerk, you'll break his mouth and the hook will go. Well, we boated the fish and Hemingway beamed with satisfaction, almost as if he'd caught it himself. That's how it should be done, he says. The way to do it, the style, is not just an idle concept. It's simply the way to get done what is supposed to be done. In this case, to bring in the fish. The fact that the right way to do something looks pretty or beautiful... When it's done, is just incidental. That was Hemingway talking about boating a fish. But it could have been Hemingway talking about almost anything.
3: Hunting a lion, courting a woman, or writing a sentence. His chest is broad and measured 48. Waist used to be 38, now 40. I know because Papa sneezed and the belt snapped and I helped him shop for a new belt. Waist 40. His language at the dinner table is most polite. I used up all the dirty words in the war, he said. His stomach's hard. He used to invite his friends to punch it, and we did. Punch his stomach hard. Howard Hawks once broke a wrist, punching Papa's stomach. And once you could have broken a wrist trying to punch his bank books. Never yet sold a share of stock I bought, he told me. Never had to. I can ride out any depression as long as they put me in a chair and give me pen and paper. And when, in 1933, all the banks closed, Hemingway had withdrawn $30,000 and kept the cash in his pockets... To discipline himself, he said. Yet he offered this money to his friends, Robert Benchley and Dorothy Parker. They laughed at him, didn't think the money real. I was with him at his bank the day before he left for Africa. Saw him sign his checks. His check signature differs from his book signature to make forgery difficult. I also saw him sign his income tax checks. He said, that estimated tax business, how can any writer estimate his sales? Well, we can estimate his sales. His publisher can, and I think Hemingway can, too. For he's the champ and knows it, the way all champions do. I remember his last night in New York. We took a cab, and I was to drop him at his apartment on Sutton Place South. The cab driver had an Italian name, and Papa spoke to him in Italian. The driver listened and smiled and said, Hey, you an Italian boy? What are you doing on Sutton Place South? Doing good, said Hemingway. Doing pretty good. And I remember leaving his home with my sons for the drive back to Havana. Across the valley in the Cuban dusk, we could see the lights of the capital. It was an election year in Cuba, and the roads and city billboards had campaign signs. Este es el hombre. The signs all read. This is the man. Who, my sons asked me? Papa Hemingway? Este es el hombre. Yes, I told them. Ernest Hemingway. Hemingway, it was not
4: important that the man triumphed over the bull or the fish triumphed over the man. What was important was the way it was done, the good fight fought with style. In The Old Man and the Sea, the old man lost the fish, but he won the fight.
6: Here again, Marlon Brando. The old man could hardly breathe now, and he felt a strange taste in his mouth. It was coppery and sweet, and he was afraid of it for a moment. But there was not much of it. He spat into the ocean and said, eat that, Glanus, and make a dream you've killed a man. He knew he was beaten now, finally, and without remedy. And he went back to the stern and found the jagged end of the tiller would fit into the slot of the rudder, well enough for him to steer. He settled the sack around his shoulders and he put the skiff on a course. He sailed lightly now, and he had no thoughts or feelings of any kind. He was past everything now and he sailed his skiff to make his home port as well and as intelligently as he could. In the night, the sharks hit the carcass as someone might pick up crumbs from a table. The old man paid no attention to them and did not pay any attention to anything except steering. He only noticed how lightly and how well the skiff sailed now that there was no great weight beside her. She's good, he thought. She's sound and not harmed in any way except for the tiller. That's easily replaced. He could feel he was inside the current now, and he could see the lights of the beach colonies along the shore, and he knew where he was now, and it was nothing to get home. The wind is our friend anyhow, he thought. And then he added, sometimes. And the great sea with our friends and our enemies. And bed, he thought. Bed is my friend. Just bed, he thought bed will be a great thing it is easy when you're beaten he thought I never knew how easy it was and what beat you he thought nothing he said aloud I went out too far when he sailed into the little harbor the lights of the terrace were out and he knew everyone was in bed the breeze had risen steadily and the wind was blowing strongly now it was quiet in the harbor though ...and he sailed up onto a little patch of shingle below the rocks. There was no one to help him, so he pulled the boat up as far as he could... ...and he stepped out and made her fast to a rock. He unstepped the mast and furled the sail and tied it... ...and then he shouldered the mast and started to climb. It was then that he knew the depth of his tiredness. He stopped for a moment and looked back... ...and saw in the reflection of the streetlight... ...the great tail of the fish standing up well behind the skiff's turn... He saw the white naked line of his backbone and the dark mass of the head with the projecting bill and all the nakedness between. He started to climb and at the top he fell and lay for some time with a mast across his shoulder. He tried to get up but it was too difficult and he sat there with a the mast on his shoulder and looked at the road. A cat passed on the far side going about its business and the old man watched it. Then he just watched the road. Finally, he put the mast down and stood up. He picked the mast up and put it on his shoulder and started up the road. He had to sit down five times before he reached the shack. Inside the shack, he leaned the mast against the wall. In the dark, he found a water bottle and took a drink. Then he lay down on the bed. He pulled the blanket over his shoulders, then over his back and his legs. And he slept face downwards on the newspapers with his arms out straight and the palms of his hands up.
12: In its own fashion, The Old Man and the Sea is as nearly faultless as any short novel of our times. Malcolm Cowley, author
4: and critic, leading expert on Hemingway.
12: The story is classical, in spirit, if we think of classical as a term applied to those works in all fields that accept limitations of space, subject, and treatment, while trying to achieve faultlessness within the limitations. Works that are Greek temples rather than Gothic cathedrals. As bare and simple as it seems to be, with only three characters, including the fish. It implies a classical system of rewards and punishments. The lonely old man, whose only moral support was his sense of calling as a fisherman, broke the rules of his calling by going out too far. That was the sin of presumption, or hubris as the Greeks called it, for which the heroes suffered in Greek tragedies, and for which the old man suffers by losing his fish to the sharks. But he had fought and loved and killed the fish as a fisherman should, and therefore he wasn't defeated in his ultimate purpose, which had been to win a battle against loneliness by proving his right to human companionship. He wins the battle in his humble fashion.
4: When the cable came to San Francisco de Paula outside Havana of the Nobel Award, Hemingway was proud but troubled. What would this do to the new book? When a writer has got hold of something, he has to keep going, he said. This was one reason, as well as the injuries, he didn't go to Stockholm. But in a speech of acceptance, he wrote and spoke his credo.
13: Members of the Swedish Academy, ladies and gentlemen, having no facility for speech making and no command of oratory, nor any domination of rhetoric, I wish to thank the administrators of the generosity of Alfred Noble for this prize. No writer who knows the great writers who did not receive the prize can accept it other than with humility. There is no need to list these writers. Everyone here may make his own list according to his knowledge and his conscience. It would be impossible for me to ask the ambassador of my country to read a speech in which a writer said all of the things which are in his heart. Things may not be immediately discernible in what a man writes, and in this sometimes he is fortunate, but eventually they are quite clear, and by these and the degree of alchemy that he possesses, he will endure or be forgotten. Writing at its best is a lonely life. Organizations for writers palliate the writer's loneliness, but I doubt if they improve his writing. He grows in public stature as he sheds his loneliness, and often his work deteriorates. For he does his work alone, and if he is a good enough writer, he must face eternity, or the lack of it, each day. For a true writer, each book should be a new beginning where he tries again for something that is beyond attainment. He should always try for something that has never been done or that others have tried and failed. Then, sometimes, with good luck, he will succeed. How simple the writing of literature would be if it were only necessary to write in another way what has been well written. It is because we have had such great writers in the past that a writer is driven far out past where he can go, out to where no one can help him. I have spoken too long for a writer. A writer should write what he has to say and not speak it. Again, I thank you.
4: 30 years after he began, Hemingway is still writing. He's writing now, as he's written before, things to be understood more deeply than he can understand. I don't expect to live, he says, beyond another five years, and I have to hurry.
5: Find archive podcasts of The Riley and Kimmy Show at rileyandkimmy.com.